Are you grateful for the love of God? Amen. Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'd like to continue in this tender celebration of his love. I often ask you and remind you and exhort you as your shepherd that our worship should not end when the last musical note is played. We continue to worship now through the hearing and the preaching of God's Word. For those of you who are guests of ours, we've been in a sermon series called Church Matters because the Apostle Paul was writing to the book or writing to the church in Corinth, the letter that we have as 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul had to deal with a lot of things, and one of those things is the division that was in the church because they had lost what you so beautifully just sang about. They'd lost their love. They had stopped loving one another. And the lack of love in their lives created division, dissension, fraction within the church. There was spiritual abuse and an air of superiority. Arrogance was ruling the day. Spiritual gifts were being adulterated and used to compare each other. And so Paul has to deal with those subjects. And I've been reminding you in this series, today being the last, next week we'll begin a new sermon series preparing for Easter. But I've been reminding you that church matters matter. So church matters matter. It matters to the Lord how we handle the matters within our faith family. And if it matters to him, it should matter to us. And of the supreme topic, of the thing that we ought to pay the most attention to as a church is this. Do we have, do we experience, and do we show the love of God in Christ Jesus? We know this is foundational for our faith. Remember when God was forming the identity of Israel? He says in the book of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. And after he identifies himself as the one true living God, he then gives them the command to be supreme over all commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Jesus is asked about all of the law, what does Jesus say in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, beginning in verse 37? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and then Jesus adds, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus told the disciples these words. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Now, what should we do as believers in the subject of love. Well, actually, love has a whole lot to do with your walk with Christ. We are to pursue love. We're to put on love. The Scripture would teach us we're to increase and abound in love, to be sincere in love, to be unified in love, to be fervent in love, to motivate one another in love. So to celebrate and to sing and to reflect and to be reminded of the love of God and then how that love should show through us is of supreme importance for a church to be healthy. I guess I could put it this way. Love 
is eternally great. You ever been sold something? You ever walked into a store with no interest of buying anything and the salesman's really good? And before you know it, you walk out with a receipt and a mistake. But there are some things that are so good, the companies that produce them don't need a sales force. They'll say things like, our products sell themselves. But they always say that to me when they're selling the product to me. When you come to the subject of love, I feel like a salesman this morning. The good news is, I don't have to sell it. I certainly can't produce it. I know I cannot improve upon it, but I will brag about it. And I will tell you that love, the love specifically of God for you and for me, and the love that transforms us through Christ, well, it's just eternally great. It's not just eternal, it's great. It's not just great, it's eternally great. In fact, I don't know that I could be more excited about it. I would appreciate it if you would just smile back at me with excitement. This is how I see Paul as he writes this passage. Look at our passage this morning as I preach this sermon to you that I'll entitle eternally great. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love never ends. Some translations say never fails. It's eternal. Never. Never means never. Now then he Contrast that. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then Paul refers to the human development in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And that famous, most beautiful verse ends it in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I doubt I could seriously in one sermon describe the depth and the riches of the love of God, but I'm sure going to try. Paul first teaches us that love, God's love, is eternally permanent. Eternally permanent. In fact, look at verse 8, first phrase, love never ends. There's some things about this world that will end. There's even good things about this world that will one day come to an end. Think about that with me for a moment. Think about the love that we experience when we walk through pain and sorrow. Have you ever lost a loved one? I spoke to one of my sisters and members earlier this morning who recently said goodbye to her mother who went on to be with the Lord. And in that time of pain and sorrow, there was also relief and hope. And I'm sure that if I asked her today, she would tell you that during that time, many people ministered to her. When you have buried your mothers and your fathers, your grandfathers, your grandmothers, some of you have buried spouses, some of you sadly have had to bury children, you know that that is a horrific time of pain and sorrow. But one of the graces that God delivers into your life is the love and comfort from the body of believers around you. 
People who just show up to meet needs. People who sit with you and weep and try not to sort out your problems. Others who talk with you for hours over a cup of coffee or glass of tea. Still others who check on you months later after all the casseroles have been eaten and all the meals have been delivered. And you would say, and many Christians would, that that comforting love from brothers and sisters is how the Lord got you through that difficult time of pain and sorrow. Can I tell you that'll pass away one day? There'll come a day where I'll never have to comfort you in your pain because there'll come a day where there'll be no pain to endure. And when we think about all of the good and the grace that God has given us in this life, many of those things will either pass away or they will change. But love remains. This is something that the psalmist couldn't get over. If you have your copy of God's Word open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'd invite you to turn with me very quickly to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, if you have a device on your phone, you can easily scroll to Psalm 136 and listen to what is repeated over and over and over again. As soon as I begin reading it, you will recognize it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For what? His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 4, to him alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you drop down to verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings, to protect God's people, of course, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 23, it is he who remembered us in our low state. His steadfast love endures forever. And the 26th verse of Psalm 136 says, Forgive thanks to God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Church family, pop quiz. Does his steadfast love endure forever? Yes. It's permanent. Now, why do you need to know what you already knew before I told you? Because one of the greatest assaults from the enemy is to cause you to doubt God's love in your life. Just a few days ago, I was on the campus of Charleston Southern University, and I was preaching their chapel to their entire student body. Chapel is required. So you can imagine the audience. Some were studying. Some were on their smartphone. Some were there because they had to be there. Others were listening. And then I got their attention. And by the end, they were all locked in, and they did not move. And what was the subject? Just reminding them that no matter what they're facing, no matter how tired they may be, no matter what their struggles may be, God loves them. It is a message that is so elementary and beautiful that our three-year-olds are learning it this morning. But we should never get over how eternally permanent the love of God is. It is tied to his character, and since God is eternally permanent, so too is his love. But second, Paul says, love is eternally preeminent. It is supreme over everything else. Now, context matters. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the church is eat up with dissension about the abuse of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are a good thing. We began teaching on them a few weeks ago. After 
time in Easter when we'll focus in 1 Corinthians on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning next week, I'm going to drop back and spend three weeks just walking through chapter 14, which is an explanation of how to understand the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Spiritual gifts are a good thing. They are a gift to the church, but like any gift, gifts that are abused, gifts that are misused, gifts that lose their purpose can tear people apart, and this is the problem in Corinth. They had become so enamored by their own arrogant spirituality and exercise and misuse of the gifts that they forgot to love one another. And in forgetting to love one another, they certainly weren't reflecting the love of God in Christ. And so Paul takes aim at the three gifts that keep coming up, knowledge or maturity, wisdom, prophecy, and tongues, all of which are good all of which are blessings from God. But Paul takes aim at those and he says, compared to love, there is no comparison. Let me show you what I mean beginning in the second phrase of verse eight, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Well, he mentions three gifts, prophecy and knowledge and tongues. These are gifts for the church in this age. Why will they one day pass away? Well, first, I think it's important to understand the nature of these gifts. When we think about prophecy, if you were to think in phases of three, first, during the Old Testament, prophecy was given to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Your Old Testament is filled with prophets. And they were under the inspiration of the Spirit given revelation. And then people who had Isaiah's message, who had Jeremiah's message, who had Haggai's message, who had Malachi's message, these people took the prophecy, they interpreted it, they explained it to the people and applied it to their lives. The New Testament is the same. The apostles, those men who were with Jesus, who were given a special measure of grace to receive the revelation of the new covenant, gave to the church the words of God. Apostles like Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark. And, and these men received revelation from God, gave it to the church. It was preserved in the canon, in the scriptures. And so now to glean from their prophetic word, we take their revelation, we interpret it in its context. That's why I'm explaining to you what's going on in Corinth because a passage can never mean today what it never meant when it was inspired. This is how people start false teachings and cults and all kinds of heresy. They grab a passage, rip it out of its context, and then make it say what they want it to say, which is why it's very important for the modern 
modern day prophetic preaching and teaching in the church, whether you're leading a small group, leading a women's Bible study, leading a men's Bible study, mentoring seventh graders, or preaching God's word as the body of Christ gathers on the Lord's day to read the passage, interpret it correctly in its context, then apply it to our lives with the same meaning that it was first given. One of the goals of preaching when I teach young men to preach as I say if you're preaching out of the book of first Peter and Peter walked in the back of the church and listened to you preach first Peter would he stand up and say yes that's what I meant that's the goal the goal is to make sure that we mean today what the passage meant then and so it is the apostles who gave the revelation and the interpretation and explanation and application. So after the completion of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and after the Bible says of itself that it is completed, that it should not be taken away from or added to, the good news is, is we have all the revelation of God's Word in one place. And so then, prophetically, we apply that today, but we still recognize the limitations of it. I mean, have, have you got all the Bible down? Because I don't. Do you understand all of it fully? Because I don't. And just when I begin to search deep into the knowledge and the richness of God, I find myself running into a wall of my own finite mind. This is what Paul says in the book of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? This is sufficient. It is all we need in order to know God and to walk with him in this life. But it is but a taste of the glory divine. And so as Paul begins to grapple with the love of God, he says to the church, you're fighting over who's the smartest. You're fighting over who's most prophetic. You're fighting over who speaks in tongues and who interprets the tongues and who understands the gifts. And you're missing the grand love of God. You're missing that one day all these will pass away. And when will they pass away? The Bible tells us. When the perfect comes, look at your passage again, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I would like for you to draw your attention to verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the perfect? Well, if you study this passage, there are three theories. I always give you the theories when the church is debating. I'm never going to hide the debates from you. I want you to know. So one theory is some say the perfect means the completion of the canon, the Bible. So when the Bible was done, then prophecy and knowledge and tongues passed away. This would be a view made popular by men who are cessationists. The word cessationist comes from the root word of to cease. So the gift of tongues no longer exists for the church. The gift of prophecy no longer exists in the church. The gift of knowledge or revelation no longer exists for the church. They ended with the apostolic age. The, the only issue I have with that, with that view, a view that I respect that many of my colleagues hold, 
is that when he speaks here in terms of the perfect, and you contrast that with what he says beginning in verse 11 and verse 12 about what we will fully experience, I struggle to press into that one word that the perfect is just a reference to the completion of Scripture. There's a second theory that says the perfect is some level of maturation. I would argue that's probably the weakest one. I would not hold to that. But the third, and to me the strongest argument of what the perfect means, is the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, I would say that I am not in the camp of cessationists. The opposite of cessationists would be continuationists. They believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue. My argument to those of you who might wonder, is he coming out of the closet as a charismatic? No, I'm unapologetically a Bible-breathing Baptist. But I'm a cautious continuationist, and I'll explain that more in a few weeks. My point, though, is that we need not split hairs to miss the passage. What's the passage saying? The passage is saying that where we're living right now, there are gifts that God gives to the church that will one day pass away, but love never will. Therefore, that which will never pass away ought always to be our focus. And I mind you, even when we enter debates with brothers and sisters who may disagree with us over our understanding of the spiritual gifts. I have brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus that are starch cessationists and take this passage and believe the perfect is a reference to the completion of canon. A, a, a prominent proponent of that would be Dr. John MacArthur, a wonderful communicator of the Bible, a man I lean heavily on from a distance. I don't know him, but he's written commentaries and he's strong and he's solid in the Word. And then I have friends and brothers who love the Lord Jesus who come out of a charismatic background who have a completely different view, yet they have a passion for the Lord. They're not abusing the gifts. They're not involved in the chaos and the abuses that many over or mischaracterize them. And in that spectrum of believers, what happens is, is that we can become so enamored by making sure we get in the camp and we defend our camp, we forget to love each other. And that's the point of the passage, that, that all those things that we have some debate about will pass away, but love will not pass away, which is why something fascinating happens in this passage. As soon as he finishes verse 9, for we know in part and will prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He then begins to use the analogy of a child. Now, Paul's not degrading childhood, but childhood is universal. It doesn't matter where you live or when you live. In the history of humanity, since Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel and every child since then, mankind has dealt with childhood. Children do not come mature or self-employed. They're incredibly immature and totally dependent on us. The first nine months of their development in utero, 
They are 100% dependent on the life of the mother. If for some terrible set of circumstances, the mother ceases to live, the baby inside of her will cease to live. And even if the mother is late term, unless the baby is removed, that baby will die. They are totally dependent. Though they are an individual with autonomy, they are fully human. They are dependent on the womb of their mother and the nutrients that her body ingests, the oxygenated blood that flows from her cardiovascular system System into their body through the umbilical cord along with everything they need for development. And then upon birth, and that cord is cut, they are then quickly handed into the arms of the mother and very quickly that instinct to nurse takes over and very soon we see that even outside of the womb, that child is totally dependent on her or his parents, primarily her or his mother, and every father in the room says amen. And then what happens? Well, we go on this amazing journey of watching this little wet, floppy-eared, you know, we say they're beautiful, but they're not. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, they really get cute six, seven months. They get some weight on them, and they're fat, and you don't feel like you're going to break them if you drop them. And they interact with you. But right out of the gate, I mean, goodness gracious, you know. And so, and so you know, and so, and so there they are. And, and, and then I, I can guarantee you what's going to happen this May, because it happened for Lord and I last May. Then we just take them to a dorm room. We drop them off. And, and, and there's this misconception that you're done then. You're so not done then. But we get, we get in our vehicles and we drive away and we go, there they are. The mother asked about them. I just missed someone have to cut grass. But the mother asked about them. And from, and from start to finish, from, from, from the beautiful miracle of conception until that moment they leave our home to go into their life, we see this maturation process. And we know the 18, the 20, the 25-year-old young woman or young man that we have raised speaks, looks, acts completely different than the six, eight, the nine-month-old that he or she was. And every older parent in the room, every grandparent in the room says, make sure you cherish it. It flies by. Every young mother in the room who sleep deprived said, Lord, fly, fly, fly. So Paul understands this. He, he knows this is how creation is. You, you and I are in an interesting place. We, we are a church that has been birthed on the day of Pentecost. We are in existence today in the year of our Lord, 2023. But we have yet only tasted of what we once will be. And this is why Paul says in his analogy, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. The point is, I couldn't speak clearly. I wasn't as mature. I didn't understand. I didn't get in trouble. I spoke like a child. Kids say the most hilarious things, and yet sometimes they say prophetic things over our lives, and yet we know that we have to be careful with their tongues. We have to sort of guard them. You got that one kid, you go, do not repeat 
what you just heard, right? Don't go to Sunday school tomorrow and tell everybody what mama screamed at daddy last night. Don't say that. And so then they go into the Sunday school and they go, hey, I need to tell you what I'm not supposed to tell you today. And then the Sunday school teacher smiles and goes, well, we'll just pray for your mama and daddy. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But then what happens? When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In some ways, though, it it was interesting to me to think about this passage and reflect on the fact that so much of child's play is in preparation for adulthood. Think about their favorite toys. Every little boy wants a Jeep or a truck to drive around in the yard, and maybe the girl next door will join him, you know? But what ends up happening when he's in his 20s and he gets that first job? Well, he spends way too much money on a vehicle, and then he takes the factory wheels off, and puts on the aftermarket ones, and then he tries to get a pretty girl to ride with him. His play was just a foreshadow of what he wanted to be reality. On a more serious note, what little girl doesn't have a baby doll? The good thing about a baby doll is, is that some little girls are so good with them, others drag them by the foot and kick them. That's when we know you're not quite ready for the real thing. Yet what is that? It is a beautiful foreshadow of what? That mother who gives birth and holds that real baby, no longer a doll. Think about the church that way. It's not that what we're doing is childish. It's not that what we're doing is insignificant. It's not that what we're doing is somehow in limbo. God has given us a clear word. We are supposed to be people with clear minds and clear convictions. We're not to live in confusion. I'm not saying that. But compared to glory, we're just playing what God's love. We can only imagine what it's going to be like to fully experience it. It is eternally preeminent. Finally, love is eternally personal. Look what happens in verse 12. I I love this passage. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. I love the Corinthian context here. Glass was a part of the ancient world, but the first way people looked at themselves was polished silver. Now, when you stand in front of a glass mirror, they can be very accurate, which is not always good, is it? But in the ancient world, often when glass was not available, they would polish silver up until the point that you could see your reflection. And if you've ever been given as an heirloom or a wedding gift some pieces of silver, you know that there is a way and a proper way to keep it polished. But when rightly polished, silver is very reflective. In fact, one of the more beautiful examples in silversmith is that a silversmith heats silver in the ancient world to a very, very hot, high temperature. And the silversmith does this to burn away the impurities within the silver. And the test as to whether or not the silver is pure is whether or not the silversmith can lean over the vat and see his reflection. What a great reminder of the purification of God when he walks us through the fire. He burns away the impurities so that he sees the image of his son in us. 
When Paul says this, every Corinthian believer would have known exactly what he's talking about. They would have known the frustration of looking into polished silver, trying to see, are my clothes straight? Does my hair look okay? How is the wound on my face? We know that it matters a lot that we be able to evaluate ourselves, especially if we're dealing with something in our bodies or if we're caring about our appearance. And so Paul says, we now see, but we see dimly. We don't see the full picture. One of the more modern examples of this is what happens in my life every spring because none of my children are gifted athletes, but all of them are athletic. There is no way to make five games a night. A night. So my wife and I, we do a logistical discussion about 3 o'clock every afternoon. I'm at work. She's at home. Who's playing where tonight? My assistant puts ball schedules on my calendar, and they just stack on top of one another so I can always see. And invariably, we will divide and conquer. He's pitching. You go watch him. I'll go to this soccer game. And anytime I get delivered from going to a soccer game, I'll load the dishwasher. But anyway, <laughs> I, 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 I was at a game the other night watching my son pitch, and so I FaceTime Laurel so she could see it. And so she watched a few of his at-bats where he was pitching against opponents. And I would try to give her the commentary. She would say things like, zoom in, no zoom back out. Hold the phone still. I'm trying, I'm trying, okay? I'm 30 foot away, there's two layers of chain link and I'm holding a phone in my hand, okay? And I gotta have the other hand for my popcorn. Now, I did that because she loves her son and she wants to at least experience some of it. But that's only in part. She can't fully experience it unless she's sitting there. This is what Paul is saying. I got the FaceTime. I can see everything I need to see. I can know what's going on, but I'm not there yet. I've not walked into the presence of being delivered from the curse of my sin totally. I've never physically been hugged by the arms of Jesus, but by God's grace, it's gonna happen one day. And when it happens, I'll be reminded of something which is incredibly personal. I will fully know the one who's already fully known me. In fact, that's exactly what the passage says. Look what it says in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let this blow your mind. I have not fully known the physical presence of the Lord Jesus in the heaven of the coming glory. That's a future event for me. But he already fully knows me. And he invited me anyway. I imagine if I could fully see him, so many of my doubts and struggles would wash away. Yet he fully sees me and invites me anyway. It reminds me of a gospel song I grew up around. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. 
And the chorus says, he knew me, yet he loved me. He knew me, yet he loved me. And this is what's so amazing about walking and living in the grace of Jesus. There's just no way for arrogance to creep into my life and arrogance to creep into my relationship with you and pride and anger to divide you and me or me to compare myself to you or you to compare, myself, compare yourself to you or you to compare yourself to him. There's just no way for us to become a backbiting, toxic dis, uh, dissension or a place of dissension, divided people if we take a step back and be reminded, I'm headed to a place that is beyond expression in this world of love and acceptance, affirmation and forgiveness. And the one who invited me to that place is fully aware of every reason I don't deserve to be there. Yet he sent his son to die for me. How in the world could I live my life resenting you? How in the world can I live my life comparing my gifts to your gifts or your strengths to my strengths or your weaknesses to my weaknesses? We are but a FaceTime of the future glory. And this is why it's so powerful that Paul ends the way I'll end. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest is love. Why do faith, hope, and love abide or remain? These are the three legs to our faith. They permeate Scripture. This is not the only place they are there. Faith is trusting in God. Hope is trusting that God. Love is the conduit. Think about what Paul says to the Ephesian believers. He says, for though the Spirit, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Galatians, he says it this way, for through the Spirit by faith we are Ephesians with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Later in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith. In Colossians, he says it this way, since we heard of your faith in the Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you don't get to have faith without hope. You can't have hope without love. You can't have love without faith. And the cycle goes on and on. My faith is my relationship with Jesus. By faith, I trust him because of the hope I have in him. And when I get to the other side of faith and my faith turns into hope, my hope is built on the love that he found me before I could even trust in him. It's not just a Pauline thing. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Let us draw near to the heart of full assurance of faith. He goes on to say, let us hold the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Peter says it beautifully, talking about Jesus who through him we are believers in God who raised us from the dead and gave us the glory that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth of the sincere brotherly love. Love one another. Just a few weeks after 9-11, country music star Alan Jackson wrote a song, and the world stopped turning. He performed it at the 35th CMA Awards. 
Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? And he goes through a ballad of the American experience, and then the chorus repeats itself. Faith, hope, and love are some good things he gave us. And then Alan Jackson ends with a very biblical statement. He's quoting Paul. For the greatest is love. Why is love greater than faith and hope? I'll tell you why. One day, my faith will be sight. One day, my hope will be reality. So my faith will be different in heaven. My hope will be different in heaven. But love will never change. Love is the greatness. My faith gets me there. My hope keeps me going till I get there. But love rules today and love rules tomorrow. It's exactly why when you think about a passage like this, I think about what the hymn writer said. Just a few years ago, he wrote these words. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, his wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. About 200 years before that, a guy, like, a guy named Isaac Watts said it this way, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Live in the more excellent way. Live in the love of God.